I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Michael Bungay-Stania, also known to his friends as MBS. He's an author of multiple books, a coach, and a founder of various businesses. Currently, a business called Box of Crayons, which is a learning and development company. And his last book, The Coaching Habit, I imagine many of our listeners will have noticed it was one of the best-selling coaching books ever. And he's joining me today to discuss his new book, which is called How to Work with Almost Anyone, Five Questions for Building the Best Possible Relationships. We're going to dig into that, but just before we kick off, you know, I, I just observed that I think anyone has to build good relationships at work. I found a lot of very practical value in the book, and Michael gives not only the ideas, but the, the capabilities, the preparation exercises and actually I was lucky enough to participate in one of his exercises and event that we were at recently so congratulations on the book Michael and thank you for joining me. Thanks man. Yeah, it's lovely and it was so nice to have you in the event that I ran the workshop and I really appreciate being invited onto the podcast. So let's again uh, start off with the overall ideas of the book. I guess that's an implicit claim in the title that we can get along with almost anyone. Do you find that to be true? Well, I think in work, I mean, work happens through people. <laughs> so you've got to figure your way through the relationships you have at work. And we have a bell curve of relationships, I guess. We're going to have some that are at one end where they're like, these are great. I love this. We kind of, we zing, we zip, we zap together. It's kind of as good as it can be. Almost certainly you've got some relationships down the other end where you're like, ah, oh, this is a grind. This is sand in the gears. We just can't seem to click. And you've probably got a bunch of relationships right there in the middle. What I think is possible is that with almost all of these people, you can build the best possible version of a working relationship with them. Not only making the great ones fantastic for longer, but actually looking at the ones that are struggling going, how do I make these more workable, more bearable, more survivable? Right. And at the risk of seeming misanthropic, I mean, I wonder, should we try in the sense that there is an alternative, which is to well, sometimes to focus on the relationships, which are the best relationships, as opposed to trying to make all relationships as good as they can be, which presumably requires some sort of energy or investment. For sure. So I think anytime you're looking at the key relationships, the relationships that impact your success and your happiness, you basically got this choice. Do I bother or do I not bother? Do I invest in this or do I just let it run its course? And I think every relationship you look at, you can say, look, there's going to be prizes and punishments to me trying to make this happen. One of the costs is that, you know, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take me reaching out. It's going to take me being a bit vulnerable. It's going to take having a conversation that's a bit unusual, which is how will we work together rather than what are we working on? But there's upside to that as well. You may say, look, I've weighed up the prizes and punishments. It's not worth it. <laughs> I'm just going to kind of find my way around it or just double down on the relationships that matter most. But when you realize just the impact that the quality of your working relationships have, just how the good ones elevate you and how the bad ones diminish you, it's really worth considering, well, maybe I need to try and figure out as many of the key relationships as possible. And probably the, the central idea of your book is that there is something called a best possible relationship. And let's give it an acronym because it's, uh, it's an important idea. Your, your BPR. What is a BPR? Uh, what are the characteristics of a BPR? Yeah, three key characteristics, safe, vital, and repairable. So safe is something that everybody will have heard of before, the importance of psychological safety. You know, Amy Edmondson has been championing that for years, and it's something that's got into most organizations now. We get the importance of that. 
It's about removing fear. It's allowing people to show up and speak up. Well, I don't want relationships that are just psychologically safe. I need more than that. And that's where the idea of vital comes from, a sense of liveliness, of life, of adventure. You could think of it as psychological bravery. And you're looking for that balance between psychological safety and psychological bravery. Because psychological safety gives a foundation, but psychological bravery gives growth and exploring the edges. And then the third of the three elements is repairability, because relationships will go off the rails, sometimes in a big way, sometimes in a small way. And there's good evidence to say that the relationships that survive and thrive are ones that are repaired, ones that are actively fixed. Right. So before we dig into some of the the sort of practicalities of building BPRs, I wanted to ask you, do you think that a working relationship is basically the same as a personal relationship, a non-working relationship? Because we all obviously understand what a real relationship is. is. Is a workplace relationship essentially the same thing or are there some important differences? I think there are important differences, but I suspect there are fewer differences than you might choose. In any personal relationship, you're making choices all the time about how much do you give, how much do you take, how much do you show up, how much do you speak up. And I think you're asking the same questions in a, in a working relationship as well. In some ways, there is less at risk in a working relationship than a romantic or an intimate relationship. But again, you know, for everybody listening to this podcast, work is a really significant part of your life. And not investing in working relationships in the hope that you can just skim through them is really going to affect your psychological state and the success you have at work. So in terms of building the relationships, a key idea in your book seems to be the what you call the keystone conversation. And you, you say there are five important questions to ask in having that conversation. T- tell us about the keystone conversation and the five questions. Yeah, it's the big idea at the heart of this book. It's the kind of the practical tool, which is like you have a conversation about how you work together before you plunge into the work. That is always tempting because the work is always important and urgent and exciting and a crisis. So there's always a temptation to like, let's just get into it. But the key idea is before you go there or even in the midst of it, you stop and you pause and you say, hey, how can we best work together so that we have the best chance of amplifying the best of who we are and avoiding the worst of who we are? How do we give ourselves the best way of setting the context so we both get to flourish? And this is a simple idea, but it's also unusual. <laughs> I, I heard it years ago from Peter Block, who talked about social contracting, the same basic idea. But I'm like, how do you actually have that conversation? And just as you said, I think there are five core questions that you can ask and answer to help exchange information to give yourself the best possibility of building safe, vital and repairable relationships. And the questions roughly are the strengths and practices and why don't I rattle through the questions? That'd be good. Yeah. The first question is the amplify question and it is what's your best. So this is not asking what are you good at? And it's not asking what are your strengths and it's not asking what are your values? It's saying, what's your best? When do you shine? And when do you flow? When do I get to see you in a place where you are like, I'm alive, I'm really kind of in the right place for me. You know, people will have heard of the flow state from the the Hungarian psychologist, Mio Csikszentmihalyi that? What does that look like? And that is already a powerful exchange of information. Let me tell you, me at my best, Martin, you tell me you at your best, we've got a new understanding of how to play to each other's strengths. The second question is the steady question, which is what are your practices and preferences? The mechanics of how we work feel minor, but it's amazing how many small things can disrupt a relationship. 
I like my to-do list always to start with a verb. It is a small, quirky thing that David Allen, Getting Things Done, taught me many, many years ago. When I'm having this negotiation with people like my assistant, I'm like, you need to start a to-do action for me with a verb. The third and the fourth question kind of pair up together. They're the flip side of the same insight, which is that your patterns from your past will repeat again in your future. So the good day question is, what can we learn from successful past relationships? And the bad day question is, what can we learn from frustrating past relationships? So this is when you're expanding the insight to going, this is when I thrive in interaction and this is when I struggle in interaction. I think as a kind of an aside and as a suggestion, when you're talking about the best of the working relationships, start with the role the other person played first, so you don't take all the credit. And when you're talking about the difficult relationships, start with how you contributed, what your responsibility was in that non-successful relationship. So you don't leap into just blaming the other person, which is so easy to do. And then the fifth and the final question is the repair question, which is how will we fix it when things go wrong? So I guess that's a conversation about a conversation. And we do have conversations about conversations in the workplace, don't we? We have check-ins and we have get-to-know-you dinners and uh, feedback conversations. This keystone conversation, if you were to generalize a little bit, how is it different and, and better than a, a typical sort of meta conversation? Well, this idea of meta is really powerful. I mean, you know, we talk about emotional intelligence all the time. I think emotional intelligence is being able to see yourself in the moment. <laughs> and go, how am I showing up? And is this the best way I should be doing it? Or should I be doing something else about it? It's an awareness of how you're showing up. This is like an emotional intelligence conversation about how the relationship should work. Now, a feedback conversation, another meta conversation, very helpful because you're stepping out of the fray and you're going, what happened? What did we notice? What's the data? What are my feelings and judgments? What do I want? So you're able to correct the ship. The getting to know each other thing is also kind of moving out of the fray. This is similar in that it is about, let's not talk about the work, let's talk about how we might think about the work. I think it's different in many of these other conversations in that it's, it's about a commitment to an overall relationship which you are co-creating together. And this idea of both parties taking responsibility for the success of the relationship, I think is unusual and it's also powerful. So I guess the information that you're exchanging is clear from your five questions, but there's probably something other than simply asking the questions. How do you have a good Keystone conversation? What is the art of having that conversation in an effective manner rather than one that makes people feel nervous or alienated or judged or whatever? Yeah, a really good question, particularly for the senior people who are listening in, because you know everybody's had that moment where they've got an email from a senior person going, can you come into my office so I can have a conversation with you? And they're like... <laughs> That's not good. This is probably going to end badly. So I think in your role as a senior person, you're often going, how do I start this in a way that feels safe? And that's often being transparent about what's going on. You know, you send a note to somebody going, hey, I want to make sure we have a really strong working relationship. I've found that actually a conversation about how we work together can be a really powerful way to lay that foundation. Here are the five questions I've found to be useful to ask and answer. Why don't we set up a time for us to have that conversation? So it's really explicit about what's going on. If you're in the middle of the conversation, and again, this is a really powerful choice if you're senior, it's about to what extent are you answering the questions, not just asking them. And you should know that the degree to which you are vulnerable, to which you want to put your cards on the table, 
is the degree to which the other person will be vulnerable. So you set the standard of vulnerability. If you're hoping the other person is going to tell you everything to you and you're not going to share anything with them, it's not going to happen. But if it does happen, it will distort the relationship. And then I would say you finish the relationship with a note of appreciation. So saying, this was great. This was helpful. This is useful. This makes me feel optimistic about the way we're going to work together. Does it depend on the, the personality of the other person or the culture? This exercise that we did at the, the event we were both at, I, I'm a sort of an introverted Brit and I, and I had it with a sort of rather shy Asian woman. And we sort of had a version of your conversation, but it wasn't quite full head on in, in terms of, you know, best and worst and what do you think? It was a little more roundabout. So how does it depend upon culture and personality type have you found? I think everyone is different. Not just the corporate culture, but the national culture plays a difference. The role in seniority plays a difference. The type of working relationship plays a difference. It makes a difference if I'm having a conversation with somebody I'm leading, if I'm doing it with my boss, if I'm doing it with a, a joint venture partner or a key client. These are all key relationships and they're all going to be different. Here's actually the secret to this, Martin. Your exchange of information in the conversation itself is important. But what's really happening is you're giving each other permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship. So I think the conversation finds the level appropriate to the people in the moment, and it allows you to keep coming back and going, hey, man, how are we doing? <laughs> How's this working for you? It allows you to stay kind of more actively engaged in, this relationship does matter to me, and I want to do what I can to keep it thriving as long as possible. There was a useful acronym you had on how to make the conversation effective, uh, T-E-R-A, Terra. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So this is the neuroscience of engagement. And it's very helpful as a leader, as a human being, to understand how your brain is operating. And it starts with this insight. Five times a second, your brain is scanning the world around you and going, is it safe here or is it dangerous? Safe or dangerous? Safe or dangerous? For the most fundamental of survival rules, because your brain's key job is to keep you alive because the longer you're alive, the better chance there is that your DNA will pass to the next generation. So five times a second, it's scanning the world and it uses four key factors to determine whether it's safe or whether it's dangerous. Tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. So I'll talk about those quite briefly. When it's looking at tribe, the brain is asking, are you with me or are you against me? The more you're kind of with people, the safer it feels, the more it's like me versus you the more dangerous it feels. For expectation, the brain is asking, do I know what's about to happen or am I in the dark? The more it can see the future, the safer it feels, the more it's kind of dangerous and dark, the more dangerous it feels. Rank, are you more or less important than me? If you're feeling more important than me, then that feels less safe. If we're of an equal status or I'm more senior to you, that feels better. And finally, autonomy, are you making all the decisions? Or do I get to have some say here? Do I have some choice here? If I have some choice, I feel safer. One of the things that you're constantly doing in a conversation as you lead people is going, how do I lift the terror quotient? How do I increase a sense of tribiness and expectation and rank and autonomy? Because the safer they feel, the more that they will lean in, be themselves, take a risk, feel psychologically safe. So that's, that's sort of establishing the relationship. And I guess all relationships go off the rails or generate, you know, unspoken taboo subjects and so on. How do you maintain a relationship or especially how do you repair a relationship or 
or raise a difficult issue that has sort of crept in? Yeah, there's a lot of good questions there. The first is an awareness that it's helpful to actively maintain the relationship. I mean, as good as it is to have that keystone conversation to start things off, it's not a one and done thing. You actually need to actively work to keep it going, keep checking in. So I've got three key principles I think about to maintain a relationship. One is adjust always. So you're doing a regular process of like, how are we doing? How are you doing? You're checking in with each other. You don't have to do it in every single conversation, but on a regular basis, it's worth checking and going, hey, how are we doing? Do we need to do anything differently to make sure that we're getting as close to what we talked about before in terms of best possible relationship? The second thing to do is to adjust and repair often. There's a way that you can go, look, the more you can check in and put out small fires rather than waiting for big fires, the more robust the relationship is going to be. So let me do a detour here and just talk about what does it take to repair relationships? And I think there's a lot to be said here. You know, you could have a whole conversation about how do you fight well? And there's good books that have been written around that. Amanda Ripley, High Conflict, Leanne Davey, The Good Fight. Those are great tools on how to have better conflict. But if you're on the other side of that and you are thinking about repair, I think first is being able to speak up when you feel that some damage has been done. Certainly, my background has been to just swallow the pain, (laughs) push it down further, pretend it hasn't happened. I mean, I lived in England for a while, so I'm sure that's part of the part of the deal. But this ability to name this is the impact that that action had on me. The second thing, and I found this is particularly helpful for senior people, is to be curious about what might have happened on the other side of the table. I'm often a little obtuse of the impact that I'm having. So one of the questions that I will ask people on the teams that I lead is, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? It's a question that just can open a bit of space for the hard to say to be said. And then the third thing that's helpful in repair is to know how to say sorry well. And we're all pretty familiar with the fake apology, you know, the one that sounds like, I'm sorry that you're a loser and took offense at this. (laughs) That's not an apology. But I think there's also a danger of apologizing for too much. You know, there's a way that you can go, oh, look, mea culpa, I'm responsible for every bad thing ever. I think about it as I am responsible for my side of the table, my actions, my intentions. If I make a mistake on that, it's about apologizing from the heart, recognizing where I went wrong committing to trying not to do it again. But I don't want to over-apologize. I want to just take responsibility for what's mine. So that's an aside on the repair. Yeah. Would it be reasonable to summarize what you're saying? I think most business ideas can be summarized in sort of everyday English language. Would it be reasonable to say, essentially what you're saying is, be explicit about relationships, be aware and, and communicate? Is that, is that the sort of the heart of the, the philosophy? Or is there some other essential element in there? I'd make it blunter than that. I'd go, your working relationships strongly determine your success and your happiness. Stop leaving it to chance. Actively manage them. Because so often we just hope, (laughs) maybe this will be better. Maybe it will be different this time. And I'm like, you'll still have a bell curve of relationships. But if you can make the bad ones 10%, I mean, John Gottman, the relationship expert said, look, 70% of issues in relationships are perpetual. Don't get fixed. And that for me is a very optimistic thing to know because A, I can stop trying to fix the 70% that won't get fixed. We need to find out how to work around them 
not try and solve them. And secondly, it means that 30% of what's going on can be solved, can be improved. And I'm like, if I can improve my tough working relationships by 30%, that is a huge win. If I can make my average working relationships 30% better, that's amazing. If I can keep my great working relationship going longer, 30% longer, I'm a big winner there. So I think relationships are such a, I mean, we talk about strategy and culture. We talk about culture eating strategy for breakfast. Culture is the behavior of your people. Culture is the relationships your people have with each other. So if you care about the culture of your organization, helping your people build stronger working relationships can make all the difference. So let's put all of that in the context of the hybrid workplace. Is it perfectly possible to do everything you're talking about for a video call or is it best in person? I think you take whatever channel you can get. I mean, weirdly enough, sometimes I think a video camera can be easier than in person. Sometimes actually a phone call where you can't see each other can be easier because you're no longer doing the performative acting thing that we can see each other on screen. It can actually be a more powerful and intimate conversation if you're on the phone together and talking about it. So absolutely, I don't think this is out. You need to be in the same room to have this conversation. You just need to be able to have a conversation. Right. So that's having the conversation relative to the technology. And in terms of the sort of problems that a mainly distant technological relationship generates, is it, is it different? If you and I have formed a relationship mostly over Zoom calls, do we have, tend to have different problems? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. My instinct is to say that the way relationships get damaged is different. Or maybe there's just a whole additional range of ways relationships can get damaged because, you know, sometimes relationships are damaged because you're at loggerheads, that somebody's a sociopath, you know, there's been a kind of deeper betrayal. But so often relationships get damaged by misunderstandings, misspoken words, misunderstood expectation. And it's like a tear in the fabric that never quite gets fixed and the tear deepens over time. I suspect that might be easier to happen over virtual communication, but I'm not sure. Like in some ways, virtual communication and Slack means that we are better able to communicate virtually than we sometimes do in person. So your book is mainly about how individuals or pairs of individuals can take responsibility for relationships. I think we have a, a relatively senior audience for this podcast, so I'm wondering if a senior person said, yeah, I'm going to fix my relationships, but also I'm going to try to create a conducive atmosphere for all relationships in my organization. They wanted to sort of institute some sort of organizational fix based upon your philosophy. How do you think about that? What, what could they do to make it a conducive culture and environment for relationships? You know, I've spent 25 years helping organizations go through cultural change. And so I've got plenty of scars of the times that hasn't particularly worked well. And then I've got some insight about what tends to work well. I think if you're thinking about this as a cultural change, the first thing you need to do is go, well, for the sake of what are we actually doing this? For the sake of, of how? The Coaching Habit book, which is the one I'm best known for, has been used to help shift the culture in Microsoft. And you know, we've trained 20,000 people or so in, in the way of actually asking and being more coach-like so that that becomes an essential leadership skill across Microsoft. It's been successful because Sachin Adela said, we need to shift the culture to support a new way of showing up and selling in the world. We need to move from being a know-it-all company to a learn-it-all company. And he put curiosity at the heart of a business model 
not just a culture change. So I do think there's a way that, you know, relationships are a way that you strengthen culture, you keep the best people, you enable the very best people to be working on the work that matters most. And that's when you see the intertwine between culture and strategy, the, the twin DNA of a successful organization. But I think if you're thinking, I want to roll this out across my company, you've got to find the business story that makes the behavior change make sense. So the story is part of it, which is why we're doing this. And in terms of, obviously, it's a whole conversation itself, but at a superficial level, what are the, the levers? What are the things that a leader would do to initiate this change in the environment? Oh, there's so much here. <laughs> so to change a culture, you're looking to do two things, two different types of change. You're looking to change individuals' behavior, and you're looking to change organizational structures. And so you've got to design a way of training doesn't suck because you know so much corporate training is pretty underwhelming that actually helps embed behavior change you've got to actually create a compelling marketing campaign that actually enables people to go i understand the pain and i understand why we need to change the pain you've got to understand the deep structures that are existent in your organization that maintain the status quo because the status quo has a much stronger pull than anybody ever realizes. And some of those are unspoken, almost unconscious structures, unconscious commitments. So you've got to understand what are the structural things that keep us behaving in the way that we're currently behaving rather than the one that we want to. You've got to look at your senior leadership team and go, if we are not living this and embodying this, nothing's going to work. So how do I find a way to make this compelling for my senior leadership team to change as well. You're going to be thinking about all of these different levers because you get one or two of them wrong and the change effort will likely fall apart. I wish we could go on, Michael, because I'd like to maybe speak with you about that culture change on another occasion, but time is limited. So maybe let me wrap up with a few more personal questions. So as a professional coach, I'm sure you step into difficult relationship situations all the time, including for you, not just working on other people's problems. What is the hardest part of implementing your own advice for you? You have to understand, Martin, that I'm a flawless human being, so I execute all of my advice perfectly <laughs> every time. You know, the thing that I am constantly learning to do is to speak up when I've been hurt. You know, I've been successfully married for 30 years. And I actually have a pretty great relationship with my wife, and we're both pretty grateful for it. And, you know, they're saying your soulmate is about the person who best knows how to push your buttons. <laughs> I'm like, that is true. Um, and so there's a way for me to name what's going on for me in a way that doesn't set me off and doesn't set her off, but allows us to kind of work through it. That's definitely still work for me to try and figure out. And is there a, another book in the, in the works? What do you think about working on next? Oh, that's a good question. Well, actually, part of the reason I got excited about the culture change conversation is that's the next book, which is like, I'm trying... There is so much noise around how to make change happen in organizations and not much signal. I'm going to create a primer on how change works in organizations so people know who the key thinkers and the key insights are around that and can put it together in a more holistic way of understanding change. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights today, Michael, and congratulations on the book. Man, it's so lovely. Thank you. I've been discussing how to work with almost anyone, five questions for building the best possible relationships by Michael Bungay-Stania, which came out in June of 2023 from Two Page Books. I really like the book. I 
I'm more of a an abstract problem solver than a relationship person, but I, I think probably for that very reason, I got a lot out of the practical advice on how to develop social contracts for relationships, how to maintain relationships, how to raise difficult issues. I think that's probably universal in business, so I'd, I have no hesitation in recommending this book to our listeners. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.